Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 73, verses 1 through 17. This can be found on page 909 in your pew Bibles. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Luke and Kim. <clears throat> now, there's much more to that psalm. Uh, verse 17 is actually the turning point where everything, uh, everything changes, and I hope you'll keep your Bibles open as we look at that psalm. I hope you'll take a longer look at it sometime uh, today as well. <clears throat> uh, sisters and brothers in Christ, and particularly you um, elders and deacons in the church today, um, John Ortberg tells a story <clears throat> from early in his pastorate. He'd just gotten engaged. He was uh, still in grad school, working part-time at a Baptist church. And he was trying to figure out how he could finance a decent honeymoon for his wife-to-be. Maybe Hawaii or some other exotic destination like that. He figured she had high expectations. But living in California, instead of, just, uh, instead of just seeking another part-time job like many of us might have done, he thought he would try his luck on a game show. And so he did. He got on Tic Tac Doe. If you remember that show, it was hosted by Wink Martindale, who if you remember that name, for some reason he seemed to host all the game shows at that time. <clears throat> and if you ever saw it, you kind of remember how it works, right? There's a, a tic-tac-toe board in front of, in front of the uh, contestants, and each, each box has a screen, right? So for X's and O's, you would choose one screen in the left upper-hand corner, and a question would come up, and you would have to answer the question. The first one to tic-tac-toe would win. Well, Ortberg was up against a lawyer from Malibu, 
Okay, rather exclusive sort of place. He was a real smooth character, real tan, kind of like George Hamilton, if you remember George Hamilton. And then um, this lawyer had won a bunch of games already, and so he knew that if he won one more game, he would also win the automobile that went with it. And so the stakes were real high. Well, they had several uh, games together, several scratch games to begin with because the questions were real easy on this show. For several games, nobody missed a question, and then finally the lawyer missed a question. George Hamilton missed, okay? And that meant there was one box that if he answered the question, if Wartburg answered the question correctly, he would win more money than he had ever seen before in his life, and they would have a fabulous honeymoon. So he waited to see what category would come up. And he was praying and hoping that it would be some category like the Bible or, or famous pastors in history or something like that. By the way, this is an entirely true story. And the category that came up, of all the categories that could come up, was mixed drinks. And Wink Martindale asked, what drink is made from two shots of scotch and one half shot of sweet vermouth? And Ortberg looked at Wink and he said, Wink, I'm the pastor of a Baptist church. If I get this right, I'm in trouble, and if I get it wrong, I'm in trouble. And they honeymooned in Wisconsin. <laughs> now, let me begin today by just asking you a fairly simple question, and that is, who do you think should have won that game? I mean, if all the forces in the universe are going the way that we think they should go, who should have won that game? The lawyer or the pastor? You know, the person with access to power or, or the person in weakness? The person with wealth, the person with not much wealth? The person who was tan or the person who was pasty? Who really should have won? Now, I know that those are huge generalizations, right? These categories of lawyer versus pastor. And I have to be very careful because I know there's a lot of lawyers around here. Some are very good friends. So I have to be careful. But I want to use these generalized categories just to remind us that really the Psalms use these kind of categories as well. The Psalms speak in these vast generalizations. In fact, the Psalms tend to turn humanity into two groups of people, okay? For one, the first group is that group of people who depend on God for everything. God is their help, okay? They don't depend on themselves. They realize they can't take care of themselves, They can't help themselves. These are the poor, they're the powerless, they're the widow, the orphan, the humble, and these are placed in that broad category of the righteous. Okay, they're righteous because they depend upon the Lord. And then there's another category of people, and that is the proud, the arrogant, those who think they don't need God. They can take care of themselves. These are are the kings and the princes, the strong, the violent, the affluent, the successful, the judges. They depend on themselves. And because they depend on themselves, they have another broad category that they fill, and that's the unrighteous. Okay? The righteous 
and the unrighteous. Now, this is not the same thing as saying that if you are rich, you're condemned, or if you're poor, you are saved. That's not the message of the Psalms, okay? These are general categories that those who depend on the Lord are the righteous, those who depend on themselves are the unrighteous. Now, in those terms, okay, when you think in the categories of the Psalms, let me ask that question again. Who should have won the jackpot? Who should have won the game show? Let me read to you verse 1 again. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. To those who are pure in heart. Who should have won? Whose side is God on? The righteous, the weak, the poor, the pasty, right? The pastor should have won, but he lost. But he lost. And friends, that's what Psalm 73 is about. Because when the pastor loses, the psalmist, his faith is shaken. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Okay? Now, what does this have to do with elders and and deacons? Well, I think this has a lot to say about the task that you have ahead of you. And so I just want to lay out four things for you this morning. You need to hear in your job. You need to speak. You need to see and you need to show. Okay? Hear, speak, see, and show. Now, let's, let's try and get into this. First, as office bearers in the church, you need to hear the story of God's people. You need to hear the claims of, of God's community of people, and you need to hear it correctly. Verse 1 again. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Now, friends, this is what the community of God is built on, okay? This is what the psalmist has been hearing his entire life. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But, friends, if you don't hear that correctly, it'll throw your life into chaos. It really will. Look at the psalmist a moment. He understood those words to mean the pastor is always going to win the jackpot. The lawyer will always go home empty-handed. But that's not what he witnessed in his life. Okay? And as you read through verses, verses 4 to 11, those verses tell you everything that the psalmist witnessed in his life. And what he saw, okay, what he saw was the affluent, the cynical, the well-fed, the well-off. All of them seemed to thrive. Those who who fit right into the mainstream. Those who ignored God. Those who ignored their neighbors. Those who engaged in self-care and self-love to the point of self-indulgence. They were the ones who came out ahead. They were always the winners. Meanwhile, those who lived with a conscience, those who were passionate about caring for the poor and the helpless and the sick and the powerless, The psalmist looked at them, and what he saw were people who were exhausted, people who were burned out, people who had nothing to show for all of their efforts. They just looked like they were burdened down with broken backs. 
See, so this is what the psalmist sees. What he hears is, surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But what he sees is the lawyer happy and fat and the pastor a joke. And he sees it over and over and over again. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now that word wicked here is not a condemnation at this point, okay? It's just a label at this point. It's just another category. It's a social identification. And what he's saying is, these are the ones that my tradition has told me all my life would suffer. Okay? They are the ones that I was told would have a lousy life and my tradition seems to have gotten it wrong because that's not what I see. And so elders and deacons, to begin with, this is something that we have to get right. Okay? We have to hear the claim of this community, the story of this community, but we have to hear it correctly. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. Now, who are the pure in heart? Well, they are the ones who depend on God for all things. They do not believe themselves to be autonomous. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. They say it over and over and over again. But what does it mean that God is good to that group of people? That he's good to the pure in heart? Does it mean that they will always win the jackpot? That's the crux of the issue. Look at verse 28. Okay, we didn't read it. It's the last verse of the psalm. This is what it says. But as for me, it is good to be near God. The question in this psalm has to do with what does it mean to be good? What is good? What is goodness? Okay, in verse 1, we're told right up front, surely God is good to Israel. And the psalmist thinks that that goodness means God is going to give me a happy life. God is going to give me a life without any kind of responsibility. I can just sail along smoothly, no problems, no troubles whatsoever. That's what the psalmist believes. He believes hakuna matata, right? He doesn't believe the goodness of God. He's into a problem-free philosophy, but something changes in the middle of this psalm. Verse 17 changes so that when you get to the end of the psalm, what he says is, but as for me, it is good to be near God. That's what's good. Verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward, you'll receive me to glory. What he's saying is, Lord, all of the circumstances of life that I go through, the highs and the lows, what I see as good through it all is the fact that you're with me every step of the way. That's what's good. It's good to be near the Lord. The psalmist was pursuing something else. And elders and deacons, you need to be clear on what really the good is. The good that God promises to his people. It's not that we're going to win the jackpot. 
It's not that our circumstances are always going to go well. It's not that we will never get sick. It's not that we will never be poor. It's that God will be near us. And you need to hear. You need to hear the right story. This is the very same story, friends, Old Testament to New. Jesus doesn't tell us a different story. He tells us the same story. Okay, just let me, let me go through this briefly. Think of Mark chapter 10, right? This is the story of, of, the, of the, the, young rich, the young rich man who comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I've, I've kept all the commandments. You know, is there anything else I have to do? And what does Jesus say? He says, yeah, you're missing one thing. He says, go and sell all your possessions, okay? And then give it to the poor and then come and follow me. What's he saying? He's saying, yeah, you got to get rid of your past idea of what's good, okay? Everything you thought was good before, get rid of it and come and follow me and find out what's really good, being with God. And, and Peter is, is really confused by all of this, and he says, how is that? Man, that's going to be hard. Who can ever get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, yeah, it's, it's as hard as a camel going through the eye of a needle, but then he says, but all things are possible with God. And Peter says, well, well what about us? We got rid of all of our possessions. We, we, we got rid of everything to follow you. What about us? And remember what Jesus says. He says this. He says, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel Everyone who's gotten rid of all that stuff they thought was good and have taken me and the gospel, Jesus says, you will find a hundredfold of all of those things right here in this life, and then you will find eternal glory. A hundredfold, you will find homes and fields and brothers and sisters and family, all of it right here, right now. And, and Peter's like, what in the world? I'm going to find that here and now. Have you experienced that? Do you have, you know, a hundred homes? Do you have thousands or hundreds of brothers and sisters? Actually, you do, don't you? If you have Jesus, right, you don't have a couple brothers and sisters, one mom, one dad. You have the church of Jesus Christ around the world. You have hundreds of brothers and sisters in, in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in California of all places. You have brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You have fathers and mothers in the faith. And what about homes? Well, what happens if someone took my home today? Would I have another home to go to? Would any of you take me in? My brothers and sisters? Yeah. Yeah. And what about fields? What if, as we read, so often happens in this world, the enemies of Jesus Christ come and take a person's field and stomp on it or cover it with salt or make sure it'll never produce food again? What happens? Well, the rest of the church who still has fields, they gather around that person and they take some of what they have and they give it and they share it and you have fields aplenty. 
That's the body of Christ. That's the good. God is near you. He is with you in the body of Jesus Christ in his church. It's yours. This is the same story. And this is the story you guys have to be familiar with. You have to, you have to make sure it's ingrained in your minds because the world is constantly telling us another story. But this is the one we hear. Okay? This is the one we hear. It's about the true good. It's about God. Second, you need to speak into that. Okay? You can hear the story. You can get it right. But you also have to be able to speak into it. This is the tough part about being a leader. Verse 13. Look at that verse for a moment. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. That word surely right at the beginning. Okay? You saw that word in verse 1. That's what heads up a faith statement in this psalm. Verse 1, Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's the faith statement of the entire faith community of Israel. And what we find here in verse 13 is another faith statement. But it's a faith statement that's, that's, that's been, um, it's been hijacked by what the psalmist has seen all around him. Okay? And so what he says is, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. What does it mean when you do something in vain? Well, what that means is you, you extend all sorts of effort, right? You put forth all sorts of effort, but you don't get any results. You don't see the results, right? I could say to you, Okay, I spent all of my time at dog training with my dog, dog training school, and I spent all of this money. And the dumb thing still doesn't know when to sit and when to come and when to stay, right? I put in all of that effort, all of that money, and I didn't see any results. It was in vain. The brewer's batting coach probably feels this way right now, right? I put in all this effort, and it's in vain. I don't see any results. What's the psalmist saying here? In vain, I kept my heart clean. All day long, I've been plagued. What's he saying? He said, I did it God's way. I did it God's way. I did everything he wanted me to do. I served God. I loved my neighbor. I spoke the truth. I helped the poor. I only had sex within marriage. I did it all God's way, but I did it all for nothing. I did it in vain because it didn't lead to anything. It didn't show me any results. What kind of results was he looking for? He wanted to win the jackpot, right? He wanted life to go smoothly. He wanted life to be easy. No responsibilities, no bad feelings. He says, I did it God's way right? And I didn't get what I thought I was going to get. It was in vain. He loved God, but did he love God for God's sake? No. He loved the poor, but did he love the poor for the poor's sake? No. He told the truth, but did he do it for the truth's sake? No. He did it for his sake. He did it for his sake. Now, now think about that, okay? 
What we expect when we live life the way we feel God wants us to live. When we do that, when I think I'm supposed to get something, then am I really living for God? Or am I just living for the things that I think God can give me or should give me? Friends, the psalmist wants an easy life. He wants a smooth and happy life. And you know what? You got to take this office with clarity. So do a lot of people in his church. In Christ's church. We want to be happy. We want a life of ease. We don't want to feel guilty about the things we've done wrong or the things that we've left undone. We want the church to serve us, to work around our schedules, to take care of our children, to raise our children, to adopt our politics, to see life through our eyes. And if it doesn't happen, then it was all in vain. I gave all that money in vain. I served in vain. I offered my friendship in vain. It was all in vain because I didn't get what I wanted. And friends, this is where your job as office bearers in the church is to speak. To say that your job is not to provide the good life. Your job is to provide God. Those two things are different. Your job is not to provide the good life, but it's to provide the good. Hear the story and speak the story. And that brings us to verse 17. Okay, something happens in verse 17 that the psalmist makes the psalmist come to his senses. He kind of wakes up from his dream and he sees the world now as it really is. What is it? What is it that happens? He steps into the temple, okay, into the sanctuary. What's the point? Well, it's in the temple of God where the presence of God resides. This is where the person of God resides. This is where we see God's glory, okay? And that's what changes everything for the psalmist. That's when he realizes the good life is not It's not being tan and happy and laying on the beach all my life. The good life is being near God, near the luminescence of God's glory. Okay? Verses 1 through 16, the whole language of this psalm is on a horizontal plane. It's all about me and them. After verse 17, it's all about me and you. It's a vertical, me and God. And the good he begins to see is being near this God. Being near God. And this is what we have to see. Where do we see God's glory? Well, we see God's glory, at least glimpses of it all around us, don't we? We see it in mountains. We see it in the big sky country where there's acres and acres of land and sky seemingly going on forever. 
You see the grandeur of God. You see the glory of God in music, in bodies, especially, you know, little babies who are well-formed. You see it in drops of dew. You see it in all the creatures of our God. You see glimpses of his glory everywhere. But where do we see his glory best? We see his glory, the fullness of his glory in Jesus Christ, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled, templed among us. And we have seen his glory, his glory. Think about the experience of the psalmist. He walks into the sanctuary. What does he, what does he see in that place? What takes place in the sanctuary? Actually, what he's going to see, for one, is, is all of the mechanisms of sacrifice. Probably caked with blood. He walks into that place expecting, okay, to find maybe a God, if I have lived my life the right way, I might, I might see God. What he finds instead are, are, are mechanisms filled with, with death, with blood. But what he sees there is a God that actually wants to be with him so badly that he provides a way. I'm reading a novel uh, right now, <clears throat> and um, one of the characters that appears in, in uh, a small village and standing in the center square is a black-robed figure who has a mask, um, a hood, entirely in black. You don't know who it is. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything other than stand there. The figure comes from an old um, Spanish uh, figure called, um, I think it's Cobrador. And you read about it actually in modern times because um, these people are now working as debt collectors. So what happens is they're kind of your conscience if you're not paying up a debt, you're not acknowledging that you owe anyone anything, all of a sudden this black-robed figure appears and just kind of hangs around with you, okay? He'll stand outside your place of business, he'll stand outside your home, he won't say anything, won't do anything, but he'll follow you wherever you go. And more people are paying their debts, okay? Because they want to get rid of this, this guy. But actually the roots go back even further where they weren't collectors of financial debts, they were collectors of moral debts. And so if you did something quite terrible in your life and refused to acknowledge it, didn't try to reconcile in any way, all of a sudden this figure would appear standing on the road outside of your place of business, wherever you lived. Again, not saying anything, just being your conscience reminding you of what you had done. In the book, nobody knows who this figure has shown up for. Nobody knows why he's there. And so each character begins to go through all the things that they've done in their lives that they've never reconciled. They're terrible things. The betrayals of a spouse sending children off into the world angry and embittered, um, things that they've done in their profession where they just messed up but refused to acknowledge it and hurt a lot of people, 
And on and on it goes, and every one of them has all of this junk. And what you begin to realize is that's all of us, right? But the characters in the story have nowhere to go with that stuff. Fellowships are just broken with people and with God, and there's nothing they can do to fix it. And here is our God who comes to us and says, I'm going to provide a way for you to fix it. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in that sacrifice, the Gospel of John tells us that's where we see the full glory of God. And friends, that's what you need to see, okay? You need to see the full glory of God. You need to believe what he's done for you in the gospel. Hang on to that. Immerse yourselves in God's word. Okay? Pray to see the glory of God on a daily basis. To see his glory in all of its fullness. And then finally, we need to show. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to show it. Think about the impact that seeing the glory of God in the temple had on the psalmist. It stopped him in his tracks. It changed his life. It changed his perception of the good. It changed his entire belief system on how he is to be saved. Everything changed. Now, isn't that what you would say we need today in this world? is a place that we could go to and when we saw it, we would be instantly changed down to the core of our being, that we would leave that place never being the same again. We need to see the full glory of God. We need to see God not as a means to get whatever we want. Right? Where do you see that today? Where do you see the glory of God? It's in the church. We don't go to a temple anymore to find the presence of God. The New Testament tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells within the church, within the people of God. That's your task, is to make God visible in this place. People don't need to come here and find the church that agrees with everything they think and everything they say and everything they do. That's not our job. We are to show them the glory of a God that can change their lives for the good forever. Forever. That's where we get the title from, the stained glass business, right? It's our job to clean the windows so that the windows shine inside the church and outside the church, the glory of God just lights up this place for this body and for the world. So what are you supposed to do? Well, just show us Jesus. It's not that hard. Show us Jesus. Show us his life, his death, his resurrection, because in Jesus we'll see the glory of God. We'll see it. Show us his gospel. Make that gospel come alive in this place, right? Jesus' gospel is not, if you help the poor, then God will give you a good life. 
His gospel is, God in Jesus has given me the goodness of himself free of charge. And therefore, I'll be generous to the poor. God gives himself free of charge. And when he comes to us, his glory comes with him. He shines in his people. He shines in the church and outside the church. Where God is present, we see true beauty. And good deeds become suddenly more important than cosmetics. Where God is present, we see true holiness. And suddenly sin loses its attraction. And we want to be clean. Where God is present, we see true strength and we want to make God our refuge. Where God is present, we see true justice and we want to advocate for the upright and accuse the oppressor. Where God is present and we see true righteousness and selflessness, we can no longer think in terms of what we want without considering the wants and the needs of others. Friends, office bearers in the church, let this place shine with the glory of God. Point us to Jesus Christ. Stop us in our tracks until we are changed and we are near God forever. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your church, and we thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit lives in this place, the very presence of God. This is where we see the glory of God in in your people. And so, Lord, we pray for our office bearers this morning, that they may see their task as revealing to us the glory of God, that you would be present among us. And as we see your glory, you would lift us up to the heights, to the heights of heaven. May lift up our aspirations to be more in Jesus Christ than we could ever be on our own. Lord, make Jesus present in this place, your church. In his name we pray, amen.